For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order. From Meat Eaters World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review with Ryan Cal Callahan. Now, here's Cal. Weak penis bones or brittle baculum in otters point to excessive contamination around Alberta's oil sands. So, you know, check that tap water, fellas. A recent study performed in part by the Joint Oil Sands Monitoring Project, which is, quote, the governments of Canada and Alberta working with indigenous peoples and their communities, stakeholders, and environmental agencies to ensure the oil sands region is developed in a responsible way. Together, they are working to provide comprehensive environmental monitoring data and information to improve understanding of the long-term cumulative effects of oil sands development. We don't yet know what long-term means, but in the now term, those frisky otters are underperforming. If you have never heard of oil sands before, think of really thick oil called bitumen which is mixed with sand and gravel, sometimes hard rock. Bitumen is most commonly extracted using drill rigs that treat the bitumen in place in order to make it flow. This is done either by dilution or heating of the bitumen, injecting steam into the deposit, which sort of liquefies the bitumen. The pressure forces it to the surface through a return pipe. That's a real quick and dirty rundown. Which is appropriate, because you're dealing with oil and lots of liquid, and sometimes it's dirty. Thousands of gallons of water used in extraction, and during this process, other minerals are extracted, and things leach into the soil. Which is why the Joint Oil Sands Monitoring Project exists. When people refer to the Alberta oil sands, they are talking about the Pease River area, the Athabasca, which is the largest, or the Cold Lake area. Reports from primarily Dean and Cree trappers who count on the furs from species like otters for income 
have been noting otter litter sizes seemed consistently small. These reports raised the natural question that comes to mind, how are their baculums doing? The baculum, for those of you who do not know, is the proper name for the penis bone. Weak penis bones have proven to be associated with poor litter sizes and reduced litters in general. Lots of animals have baculums. Humans do not. But gorillas and chimpanzees do. Bears, badgers, raccoons all have baculums. Fun fact for you, in some bear hunting circles, the baculum is boiled, cleaned, and then lightly sealed with a food-safe lacquer and used as a cocktail stir stick. If you think that's in poor taste, I agree the badger baculum is much more noteworthy than the bears. Vodka martini, shaken, not stirred. Anyway, no matter what your cocktail of choice is, you don't want a brittle baculum breaking in your booze. You don't want animal suffering in the let's call it bedroom for our oil consumption either. Trappers, near and far away from the oil sands, sent in the penis bones they collected to McMaster University Lab, where they were tested in several ways for strength, including measuring the amount of pressure it took to snap the bones in half. Now, I know the relationship of weak penis bone to undersized offspring count is documented, so that is likely why the penis bone was selected as the bone to send in and break. But couldn't they just have easily pulled a tooth or a finger bone? Wouldn't all bones show the same weakness? Does someone out there maybe have an agenda? The outcome of this relay of information from Cree and Dean trappers to study is that otters in areas with low hydrocarbons have strong penis bones. Otters in areas with higher contamination, higher hydrocarbon counts, have weaker penis bones and will produce fewer offspring. This story and study is a great example of how boots-on-the-ground conversations of people who are intimately involved with a resource can effectively communicate and help get that scientific backing which is needed to take action on an issue, especially if folks are making money on it. I know that the reaction to this study will be far too slow for the trappers, but the combination of folks in the lab publishing a peer-reviewed study and those stories from the people that live with the wildlife, the insiders and the outsiders, will be more effective than one or the other. The full report can be found in Chemosphere Scientific Journal titled Co-Exposures to Trace Elements and Polycrylic Aromatic Compounds Impacts North American River Otter Baculum. If that doesn't get you excited, well, you might be swimming in the wrong water. This week, we've got fishing reports, anti-sense legislation, frozen squirrels, and so much more. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. And my week, as well as this podcast, is sponsored by Steel Power Equipment. If you're thinking about tools that stand the test of time, do me a favor and check out your local steel dealer. Tell them Cal sent you. They may not know who I am, but then you get to do them the favor of educating them on a great podcast. Anyway, I met up with some friends and we completely lucked out on a duck and goose scenario. I had exactly five duck decoys in my truck. We had solid wind and got permission on a pond where it seemed every bird wanted to be. On top of that, the mallards and Canada geese were really responding to calls, so much so that we got several groups of geese to commit to landing on this tiny body of water. It was great. We shot really well. 
and had all the elements working for us the first day. The wind switched and we shot poorly the second day, but Snort got exactly what she needed. A lot of retrieving. She got a lot of water work. Multiple birds falling at the same time. Her first goose retrieves. I think she ended up retrieving seven geese, some of which were probably a quarter of her body weight. She still has so much to learn, but this weekend was huge, particularly with the geese, and I'll admit it was not the plan to have her retrieve geese on this hunt, but it happened. I will say, if I had given her an out, said no, or leave it, she likely would not have gotten anywhere near a goose, possibly ever again. There was a lot of loud encouragement over the weekend. It was needed. This is the most experience at the youngest age compared to any of my previous Labrador retrievers. And it seems to me that this dog, perhaps because of her age of only seven months, perhaps just her personality, does question some of what the shooting results in. One of the best things to happen on our hike out of this hole we were in is she picked up a mallard and chose to carry it the quarter mile or so back to the truck, which, you know, just made me very proud. Seemed to be a uh, very proud little girl walking her duck all the way back to the truck. Late season mallards are the last thing to go into the freezer and the first thing to come back out. It is some of my absolute favorite deliciously fatty meat. One thing I often think of in regards to waterfowl is hunters or shooters saved these migratory species from likely extinction. We hunters fed the restaurants of metropolitan areas and boom towns on wild waterfowl until they started to not show up. The demand for migratory birds as food to be paid for took millions of birds from the sky and the big waters of the Great Lakes and Chesapeake Bay and the Sacramento Delta. Now, however, even amongst some of my friends that hunt ducks heavily, there is this shuffle of how the hell do we get rid of these birds? It's crazy to me, and I find the attitude pretty darn disrespectful to the resource that was saved by hunters. Canada geese for dummies. Take the breast and the thigh meat, throw it in a pressure cooker with plain water for 15 minutes. You can get fancier than this, but this is the simplest way. Shred the meat. It tastes like dark meat turkey, and you can add it to whatever and mix it with barbecue sauce, and anyone will eat it and ask for more. If you want to take that to the next level, throw some fat in a pan, take that shredded meat in there, let it crisp up, heavily season it with taco seasoning, then you got carnitas. You'll never give away a darn Canada goose again. Ducks for dummies. (laughs) Take those breasts and thighs, skin off if you're someone who does not enjoy flavor, Put a little bit of butter in a pan, get it hot. While you're doing this, you've coated your breasts and thighs in salt, a little pinch of cayenne, a dash of maple syrup, fat, salt, sugar, heat. Cook it to medium rare. If you cannot stomach medium rare, check out Hank Shaw's Duck Hunter's Sausage. If you have ever made a handmade burger, you can make this sausage. You'll never give away a duck again. Moving on. H.R. 8828 to restrict the use of steel jaw leg hold traps and conibear traps on animals in the United States. This act may be cited as the Public Safety and Wildlife Protection Act. 
It is the policy in the United States to reduce risks to public safety, as well as unnecessary harm to companion animals and wildlife from indiscriminate and injurious trapping methods by prohibiting the import or export of and the shipment in interstate commerce of steel jaw leg hold traps and conibear traps. It shall be unlawful for any person to import, export, deliver, carry, transport by means anywhere, whatever, do. Long and short is, they want to ban trapping. Introduced by Congressional Representative Adams of North Carolina's 12th District. This is a bill that would end trapping in America, and remember, Trapping is not done only by backwoods caricature type folks or young Stephen Ranellas putting themselves through community college or by those Cree and Dean trappers that are currently saving otters. There are no provisions here for research, for conflict mitigation, only for mice. It is according to H.R. 8828 just fine to kill mice with traps, which really makes me want to have a conversation with this congressperson. So let's just send this one to the bottom of the round file, shall we? Even if you don't like the idea of trapping, even when it's a conibear trap designed to snap the neck of the animal that triggers the trap, just like a mouse trap, which is apparently totally fine, you do like what trapping does for you. Whether you live in a community that could be flooded by industrious beavers, a community that occasionally gets rabies outbreaks, which we have covered here over and over again, or a bird hunter that likes finding birds, a bit of trapping does benefit all of us. Which, let's be honest, this bill still leaves room for trapping. It just says that live trapping is better. It says that it is better to put a wild animal in a trap, let it stay alive as it is transported somewhere away from prying eyes to then be killed. I'll tell you right now that I've spent some time with some trappers. Some of them are their own worst enemy. There needs to be good, responsible behavior. There needs to be good spokespeople for trapping. And there needs to be a better understanding of what trapping is. There is a lot of trapping that goes on in the United States. Again, a lot of that benefits people that live in cities too. Now, it should be on everyone's New Year's resolution to get more familiar with your elected representatives at all levels of government. And this is a softball to start with. We manage wildlife in this country, and unless you own stock in one of those anti-coyote jackets for lap dogs they sell in the uh, Los Angeles area, call your congressional representative and let them know what you think of H.R. 8828. Let them know who you are and let them know that they'll be hearing from you again. Which of you listening right now took a class in school about Family Finances 101? No one? Yeah, me neither. Just like the importance of a will or college savings plan or even life insurance or estate planning, we have to know these things. But how do we figure it all out? That's why I'm excited to partner with Fabric by Gerber Life. Listen, one of the few things expected of you in life is to not let other people pick up after you. That's why I have life insurance, to make sure my stuff is taken care of even when I'm gone. Fabric by Gerber Life is term life insurance you can get done right here, right now. You could be covered from your couch in under 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com cal. That's meetfabric.com cal. 
M-E-E-T, fabric.com slash Cal. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. I guarantee you've listened to them because I use it you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Moving on to the fish desk. One of the beautiful things about fishing in rivers with low visibility is you never know what you'll haul in. Could be a 30-pound catfish. Could be a nasty, mud-filled pair of old sweatpants. Could be a near 200-inch whitetail skull. Although Josh Blake, who is an avid hunter and fisherman, was neither hunting or fishing, he did haul up one side of a whitetail rack while clearing the screens of the American Electro-Hydropower Facility at the London, Marmot, and Winfield Locks on the Kanawha River. The Kanawha River is a tributary of the Ohio And if you are a fan of whitewater, the New and Gauley Rivers feed the Kanawha. Just write in to ASKCAL at TheMeatEater.com. You can tell me how to pronounce that later. It is ergonomically correct. According to West Virginia Metro News, the first half of the buck scored roughly 80 inches, which would have been a great find on its own, especially when you're getting paid to drag stuff out of the river. The next day, a member of the crew hauled up the other half of the buck's rack. This side, non-typical and sporting about 100 inches of antler for an estimated gross score of 191 and 7 eighths. West Virginia Department of Natural Resources believe the buck went into the river while still in velvet, but they, along with Blake, can only guess when and where that happened. Blake, who is an avid hunter, 
His biggest deer to date is a 149-inch buck. And just like fishing murky water, he, along with anyone else who hunts West Virginia, is having dreams of what this one catch might mean. Are there more monster bucks roaming the West Virginia hills? Moving on. Benjamin Knutson on famous Lake Mill Locks landed back-to-back 50-plus inch muskies within hours of each other. For those that know, the muskie is called the fish of 10,000 casts, which means Knutson would have had to have made 5,000 casts an hour, or 83.3 casts a minute, to put in the effort necessary to boat the second fish. Reminds me of that terrible joke I just flew in, and boy are my arms tired. The first muskie was 56.5 inches in length and estimated at 51 pounds. The second, 53.25 inches and 54 pounds. According to For the Win Outdoors, the 54-pounder could tie a catch-and-release weight record that has stood since 1957. Although neither fish is a record-breaker for Mill Lock, 50-inch muskie are extremely rare and something anglers dream about. Seeing two in one day is amazing. Actually catching two is unheard of. Way to go, Benjamin Knutson. Moving on, over to the animal domestication desk. The title of this desk has gained a meaning this week, in that it seems that animals are the ones doing the domesticating. On this show, we end up talking about a lot of cattle, dogs, pet snakes, fenced-in deer, and so on. The animals that humans have taken out of wild context and put into use, either for work or food or swimming after ducks and bringing them back. All of this talk rests on the assumption that we humans are the only ones getting animals to do what we want them to do. But it seems we are not alone. Recently, a team of scientists discovered that the longfin damselfish, a species native to the Caribou Bay coral reef in Belize, has put another species to work cultivating the algae that makes up its primary food source. Longfin damselfish grow to be about four and a half inches long and are typically gray-black with bright blue and yellow accent marks. They have been observed fiercely protecting the patches of algae that grow on the reef from all other species. All other species except one, the tiny mycid shrimp. The damselfish allows these shrimps onto the algae patches. The shrimp waste fertilizes the algae, and the fertilized algae grows faster and is more nutritious for the damselfish. And whereas mycid shrimp are usually easy pickings for the many predators around them, they can stay safe inside the dome of protection that the damselfish provide. This may sound familiar. Free-ranging chickens can fertilize your garden, you get to eat the eggs, but without feed and protection, they wouldn't last long with the foxes nearby. There are many symbiotic relationships in the wild, and in some of them, certain species protect other species in return for providing a food source. The relationship between ants and aphids has been well documented. For example, aphids produce a sugary material called honeydew as a byproduct of their digestion. And ants keep aphids around just so they can eat the byproduct. Ants even stroke the abdomens of aphids to stimulate the production of honeydew. And certain species of aphids have become so adapted to the ant relationship that they aren't anatomically able to excrete their honeydew waste without ants there to, uh, you know, stroke them. The ants will provide protection from aphid eaters. They'll even bring the little guys along when they have to migrate to a new colony. 
This obviously bears a whole lot of resemblance to how humans cultivated dairy cows, goats, sheep, anything with nipples, I guess. I have nipples, Greg. Could you milk me? So although symbiosis is common, what sets the damsel-shrimp interaction apart is it seems to be the only observed case of one animal species using another animal to cultivate a separate food source. In this case, the algae, which is pretty incredible. Next, I'm hoping that we'll discover a 4-H club on the Caribou Bay Coral Reef. Maybe we can catch some young damselfish showing off their prize shrimp for the season. But that auction gets heated. Here's a fun fact for you. One you should know if you're going to be stuck trying to entertain or impress some relatives or friends or Tinder dates. Symbiotic is a prolonged relationship in which both parties benefit. I would call the aphid-ant relationship symbiotic. Mutualistic can be quite similar, but when I think of mutualistic, I think of the fact that the parties involved benefit but remain independent, lacking of that relationship. Think of, let's say, the prairie wolf that followed the pioneers across the prairies. The wolves cleaned up after the pioneers by eating the waste. The prairie wouldn't stank to high heaven. Scavengers reduced the presence of disease as well. You could call that mutualistic. Then, there are obligate mutualistic relationships, where neither species can survive without the other, and here is where the symbiotic v. mutualistic relationship discussion really heats up. Like the aphids that cannot expel their own honeydew without the sensitive stroking of ant antennae. The yucca plant is pollinated only by the yucca moth. The yucca moth lays its larva inside the fruit of the yucca, the larva eats only part of the seeds produced that year, and in turn is a comfy, protected home for larvae of the yucca moth, and the yucca gets pollinated. The yucca plant is obviously very different from a moth that gets to hatch wings and fly, but they cannot live without each other. You may want to ask yourself if you're currently in a relationship, which are you? An ant or a yucca? Moving on. Here we are. In a brand spanking new 2021, and New Year's resolutions abound, especially related to losing some of those quarantine pounds. But how do we do it? If you have a friend who has ever done CrossFit or tried a whole 30 or dabbled in the keto diet, you have no doubt heard more than enough about the practice of intermittent fasting to take off the pounds. The premise of intermittent fasting is simple enough. Skip breakfast every day and you'll lose weight. What about second breakfast? Or don't eat anything one day a week and watch the pounds melt away. Proponents of fasting will tell you, and keep telling you, that its effects are not just the result of taking in fewer calories. When your body hasn't had any new nutrients for long enough, it responds by changing its metabolic functions. After a while of not eating, your body will start looking for damaged cells to get rid of, a process called autophagy because there's less sugar coming into the system, less insulin is released. Your body may even eventually switch over to burning fat for energy. Your CrossFit friend can go on about several other desirable metabolic changes that may result from fasting, including possible resistance to cancer and a longer lifespan. You won't even have to ask them, they'll just tell you. But no matter how much that friend can deadlift or how committed they are to their regimen, when it comes to fasting, they are no match for the Arctic ground squirrel. 
Researchers with the University of Alaska Fairbanks have been studying how exactly Arctic ground squirrels can survive the stunningly long periods of time they go without food and water during hibernation. In the eight months, eight months they spend in their burrows, these squirrels can slow their metabolisms down so much that they take one breath and their heart beats only one time in an entire minute. Scientists have long been amazed by how extreme this hibernation is. The temperature of the squirrels' brains goes down to just above freezing, while the temperature in the rest of their bodies actually goes down below the freezing point, sometimes getting as low as 27 degrees. We don't quite know why their blood doesn't freeze solid, but one hypothesis is that the squirrels can somehow cleanse their system of any of the kinds of particles that ice crystals form around. The University of Alaska Fairbanks team broke new ground by directly observing part of the squirrel's hibernation metabolism change. It had never been seen before. If almost any other animal went so long without food, their bones, muscles, and organs would deteriorate. Even if they were able to survive somehow, their bodies would undergo extreme damage. But the scientists showed that as the muscles of the squirrels broke down, they were able to take the nitrogen released by this process and convert it into amino acids, and then use those amino acids to build new tissue for their organs and skeletal muscles. In this way, the squirrels can emerge from their hibernation with their muscles and organs in pretty good shape. Now that this nitrogen recycling process has been described, scientists are now wondering if something similar could be triggered in human beings. Maybe the kind of muscle and tissue wasting that happens to the elderly and people recovering from illness could be slowed or reversed. Maybe astronauts traveling all the way to Mars could slip into an icy sleep for a few years and wake up none the worse for wear. Or let's say you rung in the new year, long into the early morning, or even day of January 1, and you want to get fresh and forget what happened. The damage that you did by overindulging? Well... Do we have the new health and recovery fad for you? Get that AGS. That's Arctic Ground Squirrel, bro. Yes! That's awesome! That's all I've got for you this week. Thanks so much for listening, and as per usual, let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods by writing in to AskCal, that's A-S-K-C-A-L, at TheMeatEater.com. Happy New Year, and thanks again. I'll talk to you next week. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. 
That's seafoamworks.com to learn more.